Sisters, this is Cameron Riley on the No Illusions podcast, Tuesday, March 6 to 12. Kicking off the show today, got a, a terrific little article I read in Physics Today, um, physicstoday.org by Simon Sherwood, not to be confused with Simon Sherwood, who's a, a tech journalist in Australia. Uh, this is Stephen Sherwood. Yeah, not to be confused with Simon Sherwood. All right, I got confused. See, I told you not to be confused and I got confused. That's how confusing it is. Uh, by the way, I'm going to be puffing on a Podomo cigar and drinking a coffee in between this, so don't mind my puffing and slurping. The article's entitled Science Controversies Past and Present. Um, it actually dates back to October 2011, but uh, I only read it this morning at the gym on the treadmill. No, I was on a bike at this stage, I think. Uh, but a terrific... Um, explanation for why climate change deniers, and we know we've got a lot of them in the developed world, typically people who sit and politicians who sit on the right side of the spectrum, and um, the, the, the correlation between them and the Catholic Church from the Dark Ages. Let me, let me read a, an excerpt from this for you. Although nearly all experts accept that the greenhouse gases emitted by humans have caused significant warming to the planet and will likely cause much more, only about half the US public agrees, even after years of heavy media coverage. How did we get into such a mess? What are the implications for science, for how it should be communicated and for how debates should be interpreted? Some insights may be gained by noting that global warming is not the first inconvenient truth in physics. Consider this description of another bygone debate. The decision whether to accept the new theory was not exclusively or even primarily a matter for astronomers, and as the debate spread from astronomical circles, it became tumultuous in the extreme. To most of those who were not concerned with the detailed study of celestial motions, Copernicus's innovation seemed absurd and impious. Even when understood, the vaunted harmonies seemed no evidence at all. The resulting clamour was widespread, vocal and bitter. Thus does science historian Thomas Kuhn describe the difficulties experienced by astronomers in convincing the public of the heliocentric theory of the solar system, which ultimately ushered in the scientific revolution. The clamour prevailed around the time of Galileo Galilei, more than half a century after Nicholas Copernicus, on his deathbed, published the heliocentric model in 1543. Copernicus's calculations surpassed all others in their ability to describe the observed courses of the planets, and they were based on a far simpler conception. Yet most people would not accept heliocentricity until two centuries after his death. Despite the power of the new theory and its observational successes, many people, even in the scientific community, could not relinquish the idea that the universe was built around them. Their belief was so strong that some scientists simply refused to look through Galileo's telescope, and others invented ridiculous explanations for what it showed. Compromise models became popular. Tycho himself proposed that the planets orbit the sun, but maintained that the sun and its entourage all orbit the Earth. 
Over time, such crutches fell by the wayside. Copernicus's view was generally accepted among scientists by the late 17th century and among the public by the late 18th century. The progression of the global warming idea so far has been quite similar to that of Copernicanism. That's a fun word to say ten times first. Copernicanism. Copernicanism, 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 Copernicanism. Yeah, it's not so hard. The idea that changes in atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations can and do cause significant climate changes, a notion for which I'll use the shorthand term greenhouse warming, says the author, was proposed qualitatively by, in 1864 by renowned physicist John Tyndall. 1864. When he discovered carbon dioxide's opacity to IR radiation. In 1896, Nobel laureate Svante Aranjus quantitatively predicted the warming to be caused in the future by coal burning. The prediction was tested and promoted by steam engineer Guy Callender in the late 1930s. At first, few could accept that humans were capable of influencing the climate of an entire planet, but over time, with more calculations, scientists found the possibility increasingly difficult to dismiss. Many who are unwilling to accept the full brunt of greenhouse warming have embraced a more comforting compromise reminiscent of the Tychonic system, that CO2 has some role in climate, but its importance is being exaggerated. But accepting a non-zero warming effect puts one in a slippery slope. Once acknowledged, the effect must be quantified, and every legitimate method for doing so yields a significant magnitude. As the evidence sinks in, we can expect a continued, if slow, drift to full acceptance. It took both Copernicanism and greenhouse warming roughly a century to go from initial proposal to broad acceptance by the relevant scientific communities. It remains to be seen how long it will take greenhouse warming to achieve a clear public consensus. One hopes it will not take another century. So that's again by Stephen Sherwood in physicstoday.org. Keeping with science stories, a uh, terrific article I read in Fast Company's website, fastcoexist.com, by Ariel Schwartz. The unbreakable smartphone that lasts for weeks without recharging. Stuart Parkin's digital storage research is part of the reason why the video stored on your cell phone works. It has also contributed to Google and Facebook's ability to build giant data centres. The IBM researcher's work on data storage has changed the way we use electronic devices. Now he's about to do it again. This time by soaring past Moore's law with a new kind of memory technology that's 100 times faster and far more energy efficient than what we have now. The technology is called race track memory and eight years or so from now it might be what's storing data on your laptop or cell phone. Racetrack memory is more stable than flash, allows for long battery life and stores unfathomable amounts of data. Imagine a nearly unbreakable smartphone that can store thousands of movies and lasts for weeks without needing to be recharged. In one fell swoop, racetrack memory could mitigate the problem of pricey devices constantly needing to be replaced and alleviate pressure on the power grid. Ultimately, IBM hopes that racetrack memory devices can be wiped and rewritten millions of times. Flash drives often lose reliability after a bit, undergoes 100,000 rewrites. It stands to reason, then, that devices using racetrack memory should last significantly longer than their flash counterparts. Now, I've always wondered about that. Why does my iPhone become slow after a couple of years, like unusable slow? It, I mean, I always figured it was deliberately designed into successive versions of iOS by our friends at Apple to make you buy a new iPhone. 
okay, if the device is, you know, two generations or more old, kill it. But maybe they're not so sinister. Maybe it's got something to do with uh, flash memory. Speaking of iPhones, am I the only person? No, I know I'm not. I'm having massive problems with my iPhone. iPhone 4S, which is the third iPhone 4S I've had. Had it replaced twice already. Got this one the second week of January. Giving me this uh, invalid SIM message three or four times a day. I have to, can't just reboot the phone. I have to eject the SIM card polish it on my jeans it's got big scratches on it from some component i don't know people there's thousands of people on the forums complaining about the same message and hoping that um, an ios update that's due on march 7th probably march 8th here in australia will fix it Uh, it's just annoying anyway um the concept for racetrack memory has been around since 2008 but it was only in december 2011 that the ibm team unveiled the first fully functioning prototype on a single chip so uh, that's exciting. So a decade or so from now, we should be able to walk around with portable devices that have a million times the storage that we have today, but can also be rewritten millions of times. Um, you know, which makes me think, you know, 15, 16 years ago, 95, 96, um, you know, I can remember backing up to floppy disks, 1.44 megabyte floppy disks. And, um, you know, just today I've got several one terabyte drives sitting on my desk, one dedicated just to music, one dedicated to Time Machine, another one I have at home beside my bed that's dedicated to movies and TV. So we've come a long way. I mean, my iPhone now, I think it's... I don't know, what, 64 gig on the iPhone? I mean, the concept of that 15 years ago, that you'd have 64 gig on a phone. My phone in 1995 was, uh, you know, one of these, I think it was a little Motorola Flip with uh, a red LED readout. And uh, the concept that you'd have 64 gigabytes of storage on your phone a decade and a half later would have been inconceivable to most people. So... um, when we talk about phones a decade from now having a million times the storage that we have today, you know, we need to think back 10 or 15 years ago and realise how far it's come. All right, staying on the science stories, this is another one I read uh, yesterday. Totally excited by this story. It was in New Scientist. It's by uh, Sally Addy. Um, and I read about it in uh, Boing Boing, actually. The um, article in New Scientist, if you're looking for it, is called Zap Your Brain Into the Zone, Fast Track to Pure Focus. And again, I'm just going to read some excerpts from the article. Um, According to pioneering research by Anders Ericsson at Florida State University in Tallahassee, it normally takes 10,000 hours of practice to become expert in any discipline. Over that time, your brain knits together a wealth of new circuits, that eventually allow you to execute the skill automatically without consciously considering each action. Now, we've um, just me ad-libbing for a second. Now, we've heard about this stuff a lot over the last decade or so, the 10,000 hours. I think um, it was the subject of um, uh, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, Blink, I think. Uh, Flow, they call it flow. When you get into the zone... Um, They call it flow. Now, flow typically accompanies these actions. It involves a zen-like feeling of intense concentration, 
with time seeming to stop as you focus completely on the activity in hand. The experience crops up repeatedly when experts describe what it feels like to be at the top of their game, and with years of practice, it becomes second nature to enter that state. Uh, just me as an aside again. You know, I experienced this a lot as a kid playing chess. Uh, you're in a like a two-hour death match, and time stops because all you're concentrating on is the game, the moves, thinking about you know what, you know strategies and tactics, etc. It's also, interestingly enough, the um, experience of enlightenment um, when time seems to stop and you just seem to live more in the moment. A lot of the chatter that goes on and people's brains normally quietens down and you just do what's right in front of you at hand at the moment. And for those of you more interested in that, grab a copy of my book, The Three Illusions, thetreeillusions.com. I tackle enlightenment from a scientific perspective and um, teach what I believe are the, the three core things you need to know about how the universe works from a physics perspective in order to have uh, uh, the enlightenment experience without having to do any sort of, uh, without having to do yoga or meditation or, uh, you know, go to India or smoke a lot of dope or drop a lot of LSD. Uh, all you need to be able to do is... Uh, Understand some basic concepts concepts about the reality of you know what the what the world is and what you are, again from a purely um, scientific physics perspective. Anyway, back to flow. Um, you don't have to be a pro to experience it. Some people report the same ability to focus at a far earlier stage in their training, suggesting they're more naturally predisposed to the flow state than others. The effortless concentration should speed up progress while the joyful feelings that come with the flow state should help take the sting out of further practice, setting such people up for future success. Um, they did some research, a scientist whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce, Mihaly, okay, well, Mihaly Chikzent Mihaly at Claremont Graduate University in California, says um, his research into the flow state in children shows that young people who didn't enjoy the pursuit of the subject they were gifted in, whether it was mathematics or music, stopped developing their skills and reverted to mediocrity. Um, so the, the first experience you get in the flow state is an intense and focused absorption that makes you lose all sense of time. The second is what's known as auto-elicity, auto-telicity, auto the sense that the activity you're engaged in is rewarding for its own sake. The third is finding the sweet spot, a feeling that your skills are perfectly matched to the task at hand, leaving you neither frustrated nor bored. And finally, flow is characterised by automaticity, the sense that the piano is playing itself, for example. Exactly what happens in the brain during flow has been of particular interest, but it has been tricky to measure. Csikszentmihalyi, <laughs> I'm going to call him Chicks from now on, took an early stab at it using EEG to measure the brain waves of expert chess players during a game. He found that the most skilled players showed less activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is typically associated with higher cognitive processes such as working memory and verbalisation. That may seem counterintuitive, but silencing self-critical thoughts might allow more automatic processes to take hold, which would in turn produce that effortless feeling of flow. I remember reading... Uh, sorry, my cigar's going out. Just trying to bring it back to life. I remember reading um, a book about Gary Kasparov, probably the greatest chess player in history, um, 
several years ago, and they were saying that when Gary's looking at the board, he's not thinking about moves. He's not thinking, okay, if he does this, I'll do that, and if he does this, I'll do that, and then I can do this, which is how most amateur chess players uh, uh, approach a game of chess. Gary sees patterns. He looks at the board, and he recognises a pattern, and he instinctively knows from you know, a lifetime of chess, he's been playing chess all day since he was about six years old, that, um, you know, what he's supposed to do when that pattern emerges. So it's very different from having to think step by step. It's more pattern recognition, which is interesting. Uh, la, 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 la. Michael Wiesand, who works at the Mind Research Network in Albuquerque, New Mexico, hooked my brain, this is the author, up to what's essentially a nine-volt battery he sticks the anode, the positive pole of the battery, to my temple and the cathode to my left arm. You're going to feel a slight tingle, he says, and warns me that if I remove an electrode and break the connection, the voltage passing through my brain will blind me for a good few seconds. Wizend, who's working on a US Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency program, DARPA, by the way, same people who invented the internet, thank you very much, has been using this form of transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, to cut the time it takes to train snipers. From the electrodes, a 2 milliamp current will run through the part of my brain associated with object recognition, an important skill when visually uh, combing a scene for assailants. Sorry, i got to take a drink. The mild electrical shock is meant to depolarise the neuronal membranes in the region, making the cells more excitable and responsive to inputs. Like many other neuroscientists working with TDCS, Wisen thinks this accelerates formation of new neural pathways during the time that someone practices a skill. So it basically speeds up your brain's ability to learn. One possibility is that the electrodes somehow reduce activity in the prefrontal cortex, the area used in critical thought, which Chicks has found to be muted during flow. So... Um, uh, the author of this article, Sally Addy, is, um, you know, they, she goes out to a sniping range, they teach her how to use sniper rifle, and she says she's hopeless at it. Crap. Can't hit a target, right? Then they put, this is before they put the brain cap on, then they put the brain cap on, switch it on. She says, initially there's a slight tingle and suddenly my mouth tastes like I've just licked the inside of an aluminium can. I don't notice any other effect. I simply begin to take out attacker after attacker. As 20 of them run at me brandishing their guns, I calmly line up my rifle, take a moment to breathe deeply and pick off the closest one before tranquilly assessing my next target. In what seems like next to no time, I hear a voice call out, OK, that's it. The lights come up in the simulation room and one of the assistants at Advanced Brain Monitoring, a young woman just out of university, tentatively enters the darkened room. In the sudden quiet amid the bodies around me, I was really expecting more assailants and I'm a bit disappointed when the team begins to remove my electrodes. I look up and wonder if someone wound the clocks forward. Inexplicably, 20 minutes have just passed. How many did I get? I ask the assistant. She looks at me quizzically. All of them. So uh, how exciting is that? You know, imagine putting on a brain cap when you're learning to play piano or you're learning to paint or play guitar, or play chess, or, or just on the job, you're learning a new skill. Whack your brain cap on, learn it in a fraction of the time. Uh, very, very exciting shit. Um, yeah, one more science story before we move on to politics. 
Now, I'm not even going to pretend to understand the slightest thing about how this works, but um, this is an article called uh, Vortex Radio Waves Could Boost Wireless Capacity Infinitely from ExtremeTech.com, written by Sebastian Anthony. He says, after four years of incredulity and not-so-gentle mocking, Bowtide of the Swedish Institute of Space Physics and a team in Italy have finally proven that it's possible to simultaneously transmit multiple radio channels over exactly the same wireless frequency. In theory, according to Thide, we could potentially transmit an infinite number of TV, radio, Wi-Fi and cellular channels at the same time over the same frequency, blasting apart our highly congested wireless spectrum. Thide's approach is rather simple. Basically, electromagnetic waves can have both spin angular and orbital angular momentum. This is the bit that I completely get lost in. If you picture the Earth-Sun system, spin momentum is the Earth rotating on its axis, producing the day-night cycle, and orbital momentum is the Earth rotating around the Sun, producing the seasons. All right, I get that. In standard wireless communications, radio, TV, and Wi-Fi, we only modulate the spin angular momentum of waves. For years, Thide had theorised that orbital angular momentum could also be added to wireless signals, effectively creating a spiral signal that looks like fusilli pasta, or in the words of Thide, a radio vortex. So that's all I'm going to read about that because you get the basic idea, but it's, you know, again, it's exciting stuff. If we could have uh, transmit much more data over Wi-Fi than we currently can, as well as have these devices with the racetrack memory that I mentioned earlier, you, you know, you start to realise that uh, this stuff's moving at leaps and bounds. And, you know, with all the talk of the technological singularity approaching in the next 20 years, um, it's not hard to see that even a decade from now, if some of these things come to realisation, things are just going to be vastly different from even as amazing as they are today. It still blows my mind that I have an iPad, really. Um, you know, I sit in the cigar lounge in the afternoons and evenings on my iPad, reading news, discussing stuff with people, watching videos, clips and stuff, and yeah, it just blows my mind every time. I haven't become blasé at all about having an iPad over the last couple of years. I still think, you know, we are so incredibly fortunate to live uh, in the uh, second decade of the 21st century. We're incredibly privileged. Some amazing shit going on. Some terrible shit too, and let's get on to politics. It was announced on March 5th that President Obama is going to award Israeli President Shimon Peres with America's highest civilian award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, for his moral example. Obama said uh, to a pro-Israel lobby group, Shimon once described the story of the Jewish people by saying it proved that slings, arrows and gas chambers can annihilate man but cannot destroy human values, dignity and freedom. He has lived those values. He has taught us to ask more of ourselves and to empathise more with our fellow human beings. I am grateful for his life's work and his moral example. Of course, anyone who follows uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict knows that Shimon Peres has been responsible for continued settlements in Palestine and uh, <laughs> continual sanctions. You know, Israel, under his government, has received continual sanctions by the United Nations General Assembly 
and told to back off. The United Nations Security Council continues to try and pass resolutions to stop Israel under Shimon, Prez, uh, Shimon Perez's presidency, uh, but it keeps getting vetoed by the United States and their um, seat on the permanent members' council of the Security Council, so they get to veto it. Um, you know, it tells us a lot about Obama's uh, government and their uh, attitude towards peace in the Middle East. Um, you know, he's always been fairly pro-Israel. Obviously, he's got Joe Biden as his vice president, who's very pro-Israel. Although in his first year or so of his presidency, Obama did start to sound a little bit tough on Israel, telling them they needed to stop doing settlements or he might think about cutting off their support. But then they just basically, under Shimon Perez again, gave him the finger, said, fuck you, and kept uh, expanding their settlements. And uh, what does Obama do to uh, get tough with them? Gives a gives Shimon Perez a big award. Award. Now, you never know what goes on behind the scenes in these things. Like those those of us that have watched enough political television in the last decade, West Wing, um, The Wire, Boss, which is a great show. If you haven't seen Boss, you know you got to watch this show. First season's done and dusted. Download it, find it. Um, I think it's on. No, it's not on Netflix, but it's it's great. It's uh, Kelsey Grammer as the mayor of Chicago. Absolutely brilliant television. Right up there with The Wire for my money. Um, anyway, as, you, as we know from that, what, what happens publicly is, doesn't always reflect what's happening behind the scenes. In fact, what politicians do publicly, in fact, can be the complete 180-degree uh, you know, antithesis of what's happening behind the scenes. So it is possible that he's publicly presenting Shimon Perez with an award... But in the back rooms, um, you know, having some tough talk about Israel's uh, settlements in Palestine. Um, however, that's unlikely. I mean, if, if we have learned anything about the Obama administration since uh, the beginning of 2009, it's that, you know, they're, they're really not out there to, to push any sort of uh, humanist agenda uh, he seems to run his government according to the standard U.S. operating model, building military bases, keeping uh, America at war. You know, they're gearing up yet again for Iran. Uh, despite Obama's sort of mild reticence, uh, to, and I think that's more of a case to distance himself in an election year from uh, the crazy right-wing... Uh, hawks that are uh, running for the Republican candidacy. But, um, you know, you look at all the media build-up, you look at things that are coming out of the White House about Iran, and, you know, it, it's, it's all heading in the direction that we're going to have to do something hard about Iran. So anyway, um, yes, that's uh, it's disappointing to see that he's presenting Shimon Perez with this award. For those of us living in Australia, you know that the whole boat people, and I just did air quotes around that, the asylum seekers, the refugees issue has been a big one and growing even uh, noisier and noisier for the last uh, five or so years. 
And I get in discussions with people all the time. I was having a discussion with a lady in the cigar lounge, actually, just in the last couple of weeks. And she was talking about, oh, Gillard's hopeless as a prime minister. And I said, well, what don't you like about her? And she said, oh, she lets all the illegals in. She's totally messed up the illegals situation. And I said, illegals? What, what do you mean by the illegals? And she said, the boat people. I said, why do you call them illegals? She said, because they're trying to enter the country illegally. Now, <laughs> God damn, this is A, just plain ridiculous, um, and B, stupid. Uh, look, look, Australia, like most of the developed world, is a signatory to the United Nations Human Rights Charter. We have a responsibility under that to accept genuine refugees who want to come to our country. So the big question is these people that are arriving in Australia on a boat, uh, typically coming from places like Afghanistan or various places in Indonesia, are they legitimate? Uh, are they likely to be legitimate refugees or are they likely to be people trying to jump the queue, as they say, people with plenty of money, uh, plenty of access, they just don't want to go through the normal immigration process? Well, apparently, Department of Immigration data just released shows that 88% of asylum seekers who arrived by boat in 2009 to 10, including those who were initially rejected, have been found to be refugees and now have a visa. 68% of those arriving in 2010-11, including those initially rejected, have also have a visa. Final approvals are expected to be higher as half of these people are awaiting review. So if, you know, 70 to 90% of the people that are arriving on boats are genuine refugees who, you know, meet the United Nations Convention and are genuinely looking for asylum, we need to stop treating them like they're fucking animals, you know, and, and, or, or criminals. You know, okay, there's going to be 10 to 20% of people that probably are trying to, you know, do something dodgy. They either have the money and could have gone through the traditional process or they've got a criminal record and they wouldn't have been accepted or whatever it is. But the vast majority are genuine, at least at this stage in the last couple of years. And, you know, I've seen these sorts of numbers put out before for previous years. So as a nation, we have a responsibility to treat them humanely and not throw them in massive prisons in the middle of nowhere and leave them there with their children for years and years and years, which is what's been happening. And um, I was actually surprised to see this report in the Sydney Morning Herald because the, the media here has been doing a massive beat-up job on the whole asylum seeker situation for 10 years now. And it's, it's political distraction is really what it comes down to. Let's create a big, thorny, redneck, uh, xenophobic issue that people can get all passionate about on one side or the other side. And uh, in doing so, we distract people from some of the more important issues that's the, that are going on in our country. I'm not saying that the human rights... Uh, of these people aren't, is a very important issue, but that there are lots of other bigger issues that, that are going on. I mean, we've got a couple of thousand of these people come in every year. Um, it's, it's really, a, a, you know, a, a small issue. It should be a smaller issue than it's made out to be by the media coverage. Speaking of human rights, um, I don't know if you saw in the news, if you're an international listener, maybe not, but 
There was a big kerfuffle here a couple of weeks ago where um, the Prime Minister, Julia Gillard's leadership of the Australian Labor Party was challenged by the former Prime Minister who she deposed a couple of years ago, Kevin Rudd. Um, big deal here. Rudd resigned as Foreign Minister, challenged her for the leadership, lost... And the new foreign minister that was appointed is a chap by the name of Bob Carr, uh, formerly Premier of New South Wales, longest-serving Premier, I think, of New South Wales. Um, longest-serving consecutive Premier, anyway, of New South Wales. And uh, interestingly enough, Mr Carr is one of the uh, people most responsible for us not having the equivalent of a Bill of Rights in Australia. There was a committee formed by the federal government a couple of years ago to look into the issue of whether or not Australia should have a human rights charter. And this committee that was headed by a gentleman called Father Frank Brennan actually did write a recommendation, very, very detailed report and recommendation to the government that we should have a, an official document um, in this country that recognised a range of basic rights which would have included the right for uh, all people to get married, including homosexuals, would have enshrined uh, rights for our Indigenous population, it would have enshrined rights for asylum seekers coming to the country. Now, Bob Carr, who is um, quite an intellectual, I gather, and uh, a former lawyer, wrote many, many uh, opinion pieces saying that we didn't need a human rights charter in this country, that all of the rights that we needed were well enshrined in the Westminster system, in our constitution and in uh, legal precedents, and that uh, we were doing fine. There was no need for it. Unless, of course, you're homosexual, black, uh, or an asylum seeker, or somebody who wants to smoke a cigar. <laughs> Our rights are getting destroyed uh, on a yearly basis. Um, so anyway, it's interesting, I thought, that this guy who, you know, fought hard and long for Australia not to have a human rights charter is now a foreign minister, which is, of course, going to involve him uh, chastising China on its human rights stance on a regular basis in Iran, etc., etc., Speaking about the Australian economy, uh, Wayne Swan, our treasurer, tweeted a little graph yesterday that uh, claims to indicate that Australia's economy has outperformed uh, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, the United States and Canada's economies on a uh, pre-GFC, you know, in terms of uh, cumulative growth on pre-GFC levels. Um, now, I got into a big debate on Twitter about exactly what this chart is showing and what pre-FGC levels means and how, what the period of the cumulative growth is they're looking at. Is it five years, 50 years, 100 years? Uh, but I, I don't think it, it, it uh, really matters. Uh, I'm sure it's only, you know, say 2005, 6, 7 onwards. Um, the point is that, you know, from a local political perspective, we have a lot of uh, Labor haters in this country. And, and by the way, you know, I, I, I don't vote Labor. I've never voted Labor. I won't vote Labor. Uh, I think they're uh, a disgrace. But, I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to just 
sit around and talk bullshit. You know what pisses me off is that people on either side of the political spectrum, you know, which is centre-right and far-right in this country, um, just talk bullshit that they haven't even considered. I mean, just spew shallow rhetoric about politics that they read on a newspaper headline or they heard on talkback radio or if they're in the US they saw on Fox News. You know, people will say, oh, Gillard screwed the economy. Really? And on what metric are you basing that on? I mean, according to this graph and other data we've seen before, our economy is outperforming the economies of all of the other major developed countries around the world uh, post-GFC. If you take the you know growth compared to pre-GFC levels, outperforming in a massive way. Most of these countries have gone backwards. Uh, some, like the United States and Germany, have very small growth, around about 1.5% compared to their pre-GFC levels. Australia is sitting around about 7.4% according to this chart. So um, we're doing very, very well by comparison. Now, do the, does the ALP get all of the credit for that? I don't think so. I mean, we had a fairly strong economy when they took over uh, just before the GFC uh, happened. Um, but again, does the previous government get to take credit for that? I don't think so. You know, they were in charge when we had a massive resources boom to China and India. Uh, you know, and, and we don't have, uh, you know, uh, a deregulated financial services sector. So our banks uh, have this oligopoly amongst themselves. Uh, therefore, they don't need to compete very strongly for uh, business. Therefore, they were sitting on very, very healthy balances when the GFC hit and they didn't get... Uh, you know, they didn't have to be bailed out like uh, banks in other parts of the world did that have more financial sector uh, free market competition. So, I don't know. Look, there's um, just a, just an interesting stat. But just one thing, if you ever hear people saying, you know, spewing rhetoric about the political system on either side of it, just stop and ask them. It's interesting. Why do you think that? What you typically find is... Um, they don't really know what they're talking about. It's like people who go on about, you know, the, the climate deniers. They say, oh, you know, I don't believe that humans are having an effect on climate change. Yeah, really? That's interesting. Why not? I just don't believe it. Why not? I just don't think that's possible. Yeah, that's interesting. Why not? Well, I, I don't know. I just don't believe it. Right. So the majority of the world's climate scientists believe it uh, and they actually know what's going on but you don't believe it but you don't know why you don't believe it yeah that's right that's over these conversations with people on a disgustingly regular basis um all right well look that's the show for this week folks that's 40 minutes by the way this is now thursday the 8th of march i got interrupted the other day when i was recording and um didn't get back to it so a couple of days break in there but uh, for those of you that are listening, send me a tweet, Cameron Riley. Let me know that you're listening. Uh, let me know um, if you have any thoughts about the show, about the issues. And um, I don't know, folks, what else can I tell you? Watch watch The Boss. Just Boss. Absolutely. If you haven't watched it, download it, do it. Um, and tell me what you think. All right. This is Cameron out. Thanks for listening, folks.